Hey there, my name's Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question, not to come up with a universal answer, but to provide you with content that inspires you to find and define your own answer to this question. While I'm also trying to share with you what I perceive to be more genuine expressions of the human experience. On the 17th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm joined by Bayo Okamalefe, who is a widely celebrated international speaker, post-humanist thinker, professor, public intellectual and author. Bio is the founder of the Emergence Network. He currently lectures at Pacifica Graduate Institute, California, and the University of Vermont, and was appointed the inaugural Global Senior Fellow of the University of California's Othering and Belonging Institute. He has also been appointed the Senior Fellow for the New Institute in Hamburg, Germany. In this episode, Bio shares with us his journey of moving beyond the confines of final statements, final destinations, and boundaries This conversation delves into the abstract, the philosophical, and the practical, as well as Bio's personal experiences of what his son with autism is teaching him about wisdom. We discuss the importance of cultivating bewilderment, wonder and inquiry, and disrupting the logic of continuity for new ideas and solutions to emerge, and in order to break the cycle of problems and solutions feeding each other. This episode will challenge your thinking and perhaps inspire you to new ways of problem solving and understanding. Well, it may also require you to listen with more than your ears and your mind. I found this conversation to be extremely enlivening and it left me with a lot to ponder, as I'm sure it will do for you as well. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like, share and subscribe as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 17th episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Bio, thank you so much for joining us today on the, on the What is a Good Life po- uh, podcast. As I mentioned to you in our preamble there, I'm a big fan of the work that you put out. Uh, you're a person who I truly feel like I hear their souls speaking when I, when I listen to them talk. So uh, it's a great thrill for me to have you here today. I'm so glad to be with you, Brother Mark. Thank you for having me. So, Bio, as, as I usually start these conversations off, it's a, it's a question of, is there a question that you're trying to answer as you move through life? Mm. Well, well, I grew up in, turns out today is Easter, right? And I'm in Hamburg right now. And my family and I, just a while ago, were deciding to go out go someplace Um, and then we found out the whole city is shut down (laughs) the whole city is closed and we're shocked about it Um, i grew up christian i grew up in a very christian household and heaven was my was my description of arrival was my was my waking and sleeping fantasy probably a little bit more than than maybe the pastors intended. I took it up as a sci-fi project. Like, what does it feel like? What, what, what would such a place that is ontologically pure, that is removed from the scandalous meandering of matter, what would it look like to live there, right? Is there dust? Now, if there's dust, that's a lot of problems, right? Like if there's no dust, that's even more problematic. Like what, what would it be like to live there? If I if I go wandering through the woods, you know, with a friend, you know, maybe one of the jungles in heaven. I'm supposing they have jungles, and and I lean on a branch, and the branch comes whipping back, this whiplash, and hits my friend in the face. Does it hurt? 
You know, <laughs> does it hurt there? Or are we impervious to pain? If we're impervious to pain, how do we feel pleasure, right? So I started to ask these questions as a teenager and quickly ran into a lot of problems. Hence, I do not identify as Christian anymore. <laughs> 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 but but um, I, I, I raised that up because, um, ironically, heaven is now my, my nightmare, right? right? Heaven now feels like a nightmare to me. A point of arrival, it, it feels closed to me. And closure, closure is the most terrifying prospect to me, right? This is the reason why I really am fascinated with trickster archetypes. I cannot stand um, final statements, final boundaries, easy solutions, Right. So if you're to ask me, as you have, and I've, I've, tra- I've traipsed off in a, in an unexpected direction, um, that what feels like a question that I attend to and travels with me, let me put it, let me bring it down to earth so that it doesn't feel so abstractual and distant for people listening. It'll be, is there another color that I've not seen? Notice the combination of, of the colors of the spectrum as we know them, is there, what would it be like to experience an entirely new color that is, that is exquisitely different from anything we have on the spectrum? Is that possible? It feels intensely speculative and non-instrumental to all the problems we have today. But at the same time, when you really think about it, when you think about such a question, like, is there, a way to compose bodies that is not human? Is there, of course, more than the animal as well, but, um, and we are animals as well, but is there a way to compose sentience and embodiment and corporeality that is, that doesn't look like anything we've seen? Is, what does the alien look like? Not, not that I necessarily subscribe to extraterrestrial civilizations, but I lean into, I lean into it. I'm fascinated by the outlier, the monster, the thing that is so beyond language and beyond signal and beyond semiosis and beyond meaning, right? And how that pulls on politics. So that would be the question, brother, so that I don't make it a keynote. My question is, um, is there another sun somewhere, another another color? But you know how you said there that it's... uh it doesn't sound instrumental to unraveling the problems of the day, but yet it yes. also sounds fundamental to, yes. to unraveling yes. the problems of today. Yes. <laughs> yes. This, this notion, though, I, I really love it of uh, even going back to your, your childhood curiosity of what would, would there be dust in heaven? Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, this sounds like a really kind of fundamental inquiry and then for it to lead... <laughs> It lead into uh, is there pain in heaven, and then pain. what what is the what is our relationship with pain in terms of then how we feel joy in life as well, and yeah. this idea as well then of heaven feels closed, like almost like a, 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 what I felt when you said that was like almost like a, a perfect point of perfection where the whole thing stops, like yeah, and, and yeah. that seems so kind of counterintuitive to my sense of arriving becoming and and i think in life it's almost getting comfortable with the the fact that i am arriving and i am becoming that makes my feel quite beautiful to me 
Yes, yes. I mean, Ursula Le Guin's um, book, short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. I don't know if you've read it. No. Um, I, I could just briefly, it's, it's a story of a perfect city. And, and in this perfect city, they have everything. Joy, happiness, mirth, pleasure, sexual adventurism, cultural mobility. It's everything that activism would seek, right? There is no exclusion and there is no inclusion either. Because if you have inclusion, you have exclusion. So there's neither of the two. There's no justice because there's no injustice. It's perfect. There's no need to protest on the street, right? There's no, there's none of the things that feels like um, a becoming utopia because it is no longer penultimate. It is an ultimate arrangement. It is final. It's, it's done. And people live there and they live good lives and they're educated and stuff. Um, but beneath the city, there's a young girl, well, an it. The author refuses to genderize the child, but it's a child, no less, because the child has been dehumanized, right? Uh, the child begs constantly for food, sticks its hand through a cage and says, please let me out, I will be good. And now you might suppose that in such a morally superior and enlightened state of being, everyone, no one knows about this child. Turns out everyone does. And in fact, part of their education is to, is to lead excursions to see the child. And this is so because there's some kind of cosmic arrangement with that utopian project that in order to guarantee the eternal happiness of everyone in the city, the survival, the prosperity of millions of children and adults, this child has to suffer, hmm. right? This child has to suffer forever. or no, not forever. The child will obviously die eventually, but the child has to suffer, right? So no one really knows what to do. It ends with a question, but the title derives, the ones who are, the name of the city is Omelas. The title de derives from the fact that at the end of the book, some just walk away from utopia. They yeah. just leave utopia. Now, I would rather have that as a religious text than the Bible at the moment, because the Bible ends with a, with a very, very solid description of arrival, the city, right? It gives dimensions of a city that literally floats down from heaven for the prophet to see. Right? It gives everything down to dimensions, how many gates to the city, what the roads are made of. And that suddenly becomes less fascinating for me. It's, it's like you've described everything, becomes legible politics. Right, I'm interested in the walking away that doesn't lead to somewhere legible. And that, that holds my attention, right? <laughs> because I'm, I'm thinking, where did they walk away to? Now, that's religion. That's sacred for me. But you describe everything for me and say, this will be your quarters, this will be your mansion. And suddenly it loses its power over me. And I'm speaking only for myself here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but that's, um, it, it's kind of interesting, this idea in, in life that we think that we'll be, you know, we could be happy if, if we get the mansion, if we get the quarters, if we have this, uh, if we have life figured out. And it, and it seems to me like that, that seems 
just in terms of the adventure within us, the curiosity within us, um, so many of these things that kind of can't be contained just within our body. It's something that almost wants to come out of us that makes us feel alive. Yeah. The things we're almost craving are the things that just put us more to sleep. Like yes. They, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry I'm taking us off on this tangent of heaven and stuff. But this no, is no, no, this is, this is, these are the conversations I love to have. Uh, <laughs> But so it, yeah. it feels like it feels like no tangent to me. Um, okay. The sense, though, then with within just what you were saying before, then how do you cultivate the space, or even like once you've kind of set the intention? And I, I, I don't believe that you're saying clearly. You like to not know where point A and point B are sometimes. So I'm not saying you've set this very clear intention for for mm-hmm. how you're trying to frame life. But how would you even describe the process of trying to create the space perhaps for an emergent color to appear and for you to create maybe the capacity within yourself to even acknowledge its existence. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. I have an an entire um, conglomeration of theoretical assemblages that, that, that I, that I think I'm co-curating to address this very same question. But it's interesting that I started out trying to do this even as a teenager right? I wrote, an, I wrote, intending for it to become a novel, I wrote an essay when I was younger, much younger, not, not, not a teenager, I think I was in my 20s, and it was called Escape from Heaven, <laughs> right? right? And it, 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 was around, it was about someone who died and arrived in heaven, described the beauty, the, the wondrous beauty, and I gave it a mythology, a name, you know, I gave aspects of this heavenly place names the angels had names certain parts of the garden had names and people had names but everyone was always smiling and then and then it quickly lost its charm right because he found that there was this pressure to be positive and behind the fixed smile on everyone's face faces was this desire to to be sad and grief was not permitted here. So there was this um, rebellion in some aspects, in some quarters of heaven, where people, I shouldn't be giving the plot away because now I'm feeling the desire to complete this story. <laughs> but, but, but there was this- This, this podcast will never see the light of the day. This will just be my template <laughs> for a book. <laughs> both of us. No one can know about this. But in some parts of heaven, people, there was a rebellion and he was, dragged into it, right? So there was this there was this upheaval, this insurgency, mutiny from citizens of heaven. Like, we need to cultivate sadness. We need to cultivate grief. And the way they do this is that they slip in through a crack in one of the multiple geological features that define this utopian project. They slip in through a crack and they practice grief. And then the story goes, you know, goes through other lengthy lines of how they actually escape heaven, but I'm not going to give that away now. But it seems I've always been maybe morbidly fascinated with cracks, right? Yeah. Places we can slip through, you know, to be other than what surveillance, you know, imperatives would have us be, right? Um, so it, for me, it seems that the world when we think about the world as ongoing emergence, 
flow. Not a, heaven feels like a repudiation of becoming, right? It feels like a rejection of emergence. It feels like the end of history, which is terrifying to me, no matter how happy this project is. It feels like no more sadness, no more pain, no more whatever. And it, and that's terrifying to me as I've already expressed. Um, so I need to think about the world as open-ended inquiry, as something so, so scandalously promiscuous that every time we try to hold it, it slips away from capture and it does something else. Like nature is not natural, right? It does something else. When you think, start to think about the world as flow, then it becomes possible to think about how bodies become monstrous, right? Like sometimes this flow coagulates in ways that the state may not allow or may pathologize, right? Bodies could become autistic. Bodies could do other things, you know, you know, somehow the monster forms. And to me, my theory of the monster, the monster is emancipatory. It is not pathological. It is the place of thick, dense intensities. Like the universe is calling attention to that place, to that monstrous place. I feel if we gather there, we might stand a chance of witnessing another color. We might stand a chance of cultivating new capacities, but we need to be broken by the monster first, right? Yeah. So, so the monster then almost represents this is like the it's almost like a it's a like a residue or a block has just like it something is forming and that like in order for us to potentially see something we have to look at the monster almost like look at reality like and and, and not flinch or observe or or how would you kind of a, a kind of a like explain it, that? It, it feels like um the monster is a reminder that we are not stable that yeah. we are like the monster calls into question the forms we've assumed and the standards and the moralities we've stabilized, right? It calls attention to our practice. It's like the invisible becoming obvious, yeah. right? It's like this density, like one genealogy, one story about autism. My son is autistic. I'm mildly autistic too, as I haven't gotten a diagnosis, but that's another question, diagnostic right. criteria and all of that. But people around me, people I closely work with, um, think of me as autistic, mildly autistic. My son is moderately so, I think using the DSM's categories. One story about autism is that once industrialization um, took, took up speed and started to put us into our homes, right? to regularize and to stabilize settlement. We stopped playing outside as we often did, right? This is just one, one, one history. It's not the definitive origin. There is none. It's a conceptually contested category. We don't know what it is, right? right? We have stories and narratives and theories around what autism is doing. But one story says that it's connected with vitamin D and with sunlight. Right, because they're, they're golden age, no, not golden age, um, empirical studies, you know, meeting the golden standard of experiment that suggest that vitamin D, the supplement vitamin D, calciferiol and all of that, actually boosts, um, reduces autistic symptoms in children. So I guess that 
industrialization seems to be this attempt to stave off the wilds. Yeah. Right. To push away, to create room for the citizen, proper, pure rationality. And in that effort to do that, to cordon off ourselves, to quarantine ourselves, we kind of brought in the wilds. Like the ambassador of the wilds is autism <laughs> in, the, in one sense. The, and it's a horrible name. It's a horrible name for a sensorial aliveness, um, which is not romantic. I don't speak about it as some romantic, pure thing that should be made into some hero thing. No, um, it, is, it is troubling and it's difficult for many people and many parents and families dealing with it. But I think we can also say to some extent, autism challenges our ideas of subjectivity, that we are proper selves, that we are... Um, that language is what gives us our status as humans, right? It challenges that. It, it disturbs our claims to arrival. And, I, and, and that's what the monster does. The monster has been this cultural tool through the ages to disrupt, you know, morality, to invite us to spill away from capture, right? The monster directs our hands to touch also the monstrosity of our bodies. Like the monster's greatest task is to remind us that we are not anything else but monsters as well. We are monsters just as much as the monster is. Yes. So I feel the job of politics is to build sanctuaries for the monster to thrive. And when that happens, then we can be alive to new things, new colors, new sensibilities. I don't know if there's something so whole or some the way you describe like uh, there sounds like there's something integrated in that thought like or that there's like a, an integration of reality and acceptance of what is and and you know sometimes when you talk about even in the sense of industrialization it's almost like we've we've clearly sanitized these areas for this human creature monster <laughs> whatever you want to call us uh to, yes. to be able to function and the way i kind of see it at times is we, we've kind of put these sanitized layers on top of what is like what is full of vitality what is pulsing what is moving and we try to have these fixed models of how we live and fixed ideas even as to what the labels that we use mean about different situations or things or experiences whereas when we put a fixed model on top of something that is pulsing that is, that is something that is ever emerging that's kind of where our suffering comes from and yes the longer yes. a continuous thought or frame of looking at something continues while everything is changing we're just yeah. going to get these pain points or this this suffering or even these these experiences that point out perhaps all is not well in this system like yeah. do you understand mm -hmm. like all is mm -hmm. not like this we haven't figured this out <laughs> as, as mm -hmm. much as we want mm -hmm. to cling to that of what we have or that judgment or that value right now as mm -hmm. like because because as humans generally you know you've mentioned these lovely expressions even in the book of people wanting to leave utopia of you wanting to leave heaven in your story like generally there's still something within us that that wants to that wants to move into the uncertain that wants to explore that needs to find new colors and find new ways yes 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 indeed it's it's that every it, and it's, it's not to say that there are two streams there is stability and there's emergence and then we're missing emergence and we need to 
flow in emergence and everything will be perfect <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I've, I've tried yeah, that yeah. too <laughs> yeah yeah it's not like oh i get it now so we are in cities and the thing to do is to move away from cities and to move into the wilderness and then everything will be no there there isn't some originary point to return to like there is a sense in which um a lot of some discourses about indigenous realities and cosmologies um, see indigeneity as through this pink tinted glasses, right? That ah, the thing to do is to, is to return to being indigenous, right? This idea of indigeneity being some primordial um, primitive state of being that re um, reflects a loss of sophistication or maybe a gaining of sophistication, but something prior and more holistic than modernity, I think is how modernity thinks, <laughs> right? Yeah. This is exactly how modernity thinks. So there isn't some return to purity. It's that whichever road we take, I mean, we're in this unending saga, right? It's not Star Wars one to six or one to nine. It's Star Wars one to a million <laughs> and then some, yeah. right? We're on this unending saga that continues and continues and unfolds Right? There isn't a plot. There isn't a single plot here. There isn't a single cause. There isn't a single evil. There isn't a single good. Is morality even questioning itself? This ongoing inquiry, experimenting with what might be, what might yet have been, what has been, and what might yet, you know, what, what might yet be. I'm playing with tenses here. Yeah. Is how I see this processual, rudely, uh, what I rudely call reality. Right, it's it's more than a reality. It's also speculation. So the thing to do is not to get back to that. It's to say, is to notice that even when we take on new projects of becoming embodied with the world, we are also opening up spaces for new problems. Right, yeah. and this is the reason why I say we need a politics that uh, gives us new problems. We need new problems today. Right, we need other kinds of problems. Um, our politics is stuck on the same problem. Maybe there are new problems to end that might be engendered when we posture ourselves differently. And it's this posturing that is figured by the crack. So no figuring out anything, just continuous flow. And in your own experience, uh, how have you moved to this point? Because I, 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 know, I know you used to have your career in, in psychology as well, or that was a, a focus. Like how, how, have you, how has your viewpoint evolved to this point where I don't need or I, I want to be in flow or in, like in aligned with the flow of life as opposed to arriving at fixed points? Right. Just an aside too. Modernity is also aligned with flow, no matter how it wants to separate itself from it. Right? So modernity is, is one creative expression of this flow. Even if a wave aspires to become the ocean, it is already the ocean, right? If a wave says, one day I shall become the ocean, right? It's still the ocean in its ongoingness, right? So modernity is one creative expression of, of fluidity of an open-ended universe. It is not apart from that. You said something along the lines of, it's not even to fix what I, what I even may perceive to be a problem with modern life. It's an acceptance that that's all part of this larger whole or like 
it's this strange balance it seems to be of of holding the whole constellation as as what it is therefore not what it should be but just as it as reality is and then while also acknowledging that reality is always evolving so it's evolving to some place so it's a strange kind of thing of not resisting what is but orientating ourselves or opening ourselves up to what is coming next um so i would i would think that i mean i don't think that reality is evolving to some place right and yeah. and i and i'm very shy about thinking of reality as a whole right um a, a circle that can be circumscribed right um yeah you know, with a center and with edges. So I don't think about reality. In in fact, I I I I, I often say, we it's not a universe. It's an indeterminate. It's very clunky. It's not as poetic. It's on on unwieldy and ungainly. But but I'm trying to say that it's not determinate. Its edges are not determinate, right? And so, so that is not to refuse teleology or purpose or directionality, um, but that is not to fundamentalize it either, hmm. right? Like reality is not fundamentally this or that. Um, it can accommodate teleology, but it doesn't mean it is fundamentally teleological or purpose-driven, right? I feel that this open-endedness of it allows us to, to dance with and co-create what is, like what is, is relational. It is not transcendent. It is not outside of us. So it's not like we have to accept what is as if what is we're outside of us, right? Even the acceptance is part of this reality making process. We are making what is as we go along, right? It's just that as citizens gestating in this modern metaphysics, we have, we have, we start to see ourselves as excluded from becoming. We start to see ourselves as divorced from flow. Um, but even that divorcing or separation is an expression of entanglement. I'm, 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 I'm wielding, I'm wielding unwieldy words, I guess. <laughs> so then, in in terms of you know, you know, when I was asking the the shift from maybe looking at, at the world in a, a, through a psychological lens or a, like kind of pathologizing uh, things where it's, this happens and you're saying things now are kind of indeterminable, this sense of, of co-creation. Uh, or how do you experience this point of becoming and then let's say a peace within it or a comfort within it or a comfort within engaging with the, the emergent? How has that process been like for you in terms of just your even your own personal journey? Like what what is what what has opened your eyes? What is what experiences have you had that makes you at peace with yeah. almost the complexity and the simplicity simultaneously? Yeah, it's my relationship with my son. Huh. Um, I could theorize about emergence and open-ended inquiries and post-humanist performativity and ontofugitivities and transracialities and. Um, embarkation and post-activism and worlds that spill and I could give language to this but I think I wouldn't probably be as sincere 
as I could be if my son didn't arrive. Right. Like my, my son is, is that, you know, the Paulian letters that the, of St. Paul, um, where he's asking, I think, was it in Corinthians? One of the Corinthians, Corinthians is, um, one of those letters in, that he wrote. He tells about his struggle with something. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. The jury is still out on what he was referring to. Um, we don't know what he was referring to. What's the thorn? Is Was it a real, literal thorn? Why would he pray about it? They, because he prayed to God and said, take out, please take out this thorn in my flesh. Right? So theologians speculate that he was speaking about his hidden homosexuality, maybe a child he had somewhere, or an infirmity of some kind, a sickness or something, right? No one really knows what it is. What's vital to know is how he responded to this thing that wouldn't budge. He says, he writes further and says, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee right? Like, you're going to live with this. You're going to stay with this. Stay with this. I'm not going to take it away, right? I think that's the more, a very humbling place in the Bible. One of my favorite places to return to. Um, this invitation to stay with the thorn, especially that response, my grace is sufficient. What does it mean for grace to be sufficient to loss? What kind of grace is available in a space of loss? You know, a place of infirmity, a place of disability. What kind of grace? What does grace sufficient mean in the, in a crack? So my son is autistic and I didn't want that. I'll just reduce it to that. I wanted, I did not want that. And it's because as someone very astute and wise that I respect, told me recently, I had been habituated out of my own autism, right? I had I'd learned how to mask it. And so there was this vigorous ref refusal for, for this energy to be propagated, right? And so my son being more autistic than I am, and I'm using popular parlance, I don't mean to think about autism as if it's a property that one has, but you get my point. I wanted my son back. I felt I had been robbed of my relationship with my son and that the son that did arrive was an imposter, right? Like he was Pinocchio. And my prayer every day was that Pinocchio would be a real boy, that his woodenness would disappear and he would be real, right? Thankfully, I'm no longer in that place. I don't like to speak in terms of final statements, like it's a constant everyday yeah, yeah. thing. But my son is teaching me, the roles have been reversed. He's teaching me, he's teaching me how life springs up in unexpected places. He's speaking me, he's teaching me how to be wise, right? And I think wisdom is that which obstructs convenient continuity. So I can wax poetic about emergence, but my son is my real teacher. I'm living it every day with him in the locality of our father-son dynamic. I'm being coached and I'm learning 
how to stay with the trouble. Yeah. Oh man, that's, uh, I don't know, there's something so beautifully sincere about that. And, uh, and that, I don't know, just this idea of what you're saying there about the habituating yourself out of something and then resisting an energy in a, a person you said that you see is wiser than you pointing this out. There's so, there's so much, there's so much to that whole scenario, if you know what I mean, that's just, there's so much to take in with that. Like, I, I just love the idea then of, not the script being turned on its head, but just literally almost almost being flipped. And then you're like, oh, wow, this is actually, this is what's happening now. My son is teaching me. I've gone from this place of, I don't know, wishing for something or hoping for something. And now it's, it's no, this is, this is my life. This is what, what I'm experiencing. And, and this is, the, yeah. there's still, there's some, there's beauty in this. If I, almost like if I remove myself from, from seeing it or, or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I used to try to correct my son's gaze, right? You know, um, he would not look away. Uh, he would not look directly rather. He would look away. He, he, he does perform this, interpersonal visuality more these days. He looks directly into our eyes, but not for long. It's like he cannot take it fully in, so he turns away, Yeah. right? And this somehow, right, and, and this feeling is not mine, right? Not that I'm dismissing accountability or complicity or imbrication with this feeling, this feeling. The fact that I felt it and I felt this way means my body was open to those frequencies, right? But I refuse to reduce it to property as if it was generated from here and not ecologically. I, I wanted to correct that. I remember trying to use CBT, cognitive behavioral therapies, to try to reward him to focus right? But visuality is not the imperative for him. That's not how he meets bodies. He's just fascinating in the ways that he communes with the world. That doesn't reduce it to this insanity of visuality. Yeah. It's like visuality is pathological for him. Like visuality doesn't, is violence for him. It gets in the way. He doesn't need to see. Sometimes through the corner of his eyes, he notices details that with my full, my eyes wide open, <laughs> I cannot see. I'm like, how did you notice that little thing from far away? And he's just like this. So um, I started to think about that way he sees as looking away at, right? Not looking at, which is what is the neurotypical thing to do, looking at or looking away from. It's either one of those, right? You're looking away from something or you're looking at something. But he performs this grammatically queer um, style of visuality that I call looking away at. Like in turning away from you, he sees you well. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it's, a, it's peripheral. Yeah. Like it's almost animal-like. It's only in the peripherality that he sees something that I cannot experience. And I think that's what the monster does. The monster is this invitation. Like maybe we're in trouble with climate chaos because we're seeing things too clearly. Hmm. 
maybe because we have all our facts straight, <laughs> right? But there's this, there's this imperative of clarity that forces and com- commands this frontality, right? That focus on the problem, focus on it. Straight, eyes straight forward, postures up, you know, head straight up, and it commands this posture. And I think the posture is creating the crisis or the posture is nourishing the crisis. Maybe in losing some of that, I have to re- write this down. Maybe in losing some of this posture, then we are able to navigate the world differently. Maybe in becoming animal, maybe in becoming autistic, we are able to navigate the challenge. You said something uh, really interesting there, though, too, just how almost like uh, you were concerned about how he was, uh, your son was coming into commune or relationship with other people, but in a weird way, we're just, we're all trying to, he has his different way of coming into commune with the world or interaction with the world. And, and, you know, as all individuals, we're just, we're trying to just come into, into understanding of the world around us, really. Of course, people are a part of that, but we all have different ways of communicating even with people. So there's just, there's something really, I'm, I'm not trying to like silver line something here and just say the gift is, there's a gift in, er, in everything or, you know, I'm not trying to come up with a trite expression like this, but there is something really quite magical about just different perspectives. And even going back to what you were saying about at the start, even trying to see different colors or interpret different things, all of these things give us a capacity for some different point of vision, whether it's peripheral, whether it's seeing different things, whether it's an idea of the monster or whether it's the idea of we need new pro- or we need different problems in order even to, to, to figure out even some of what we have at the moment or changing posture. Like when I change my posture, I, I automatically, or if I, I look at things in a different way, like there's just some, I think there's some really lovely stuff even, and then even just how you're looking at your son, just there's so much things you're saying here that just seem to be about like how we observe things and, and not being tethered from the point that we're observing things or the world around us. Yes. Yes. I'm not sure what to say, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yes, indeed. There's, there is an amazing, like, there is, and, and I find this when I, I listen to you speak and, and I'm definitely experiencing it in like uh, within a, in a one-on-one context as well. There's this amazing, it's like a, there's a book I, I really enjoy by Anthony DeMello. I think it's called the, the bird, the song of the bird. It's just a series of kind of these, these uh, almost expressions or short paragraphs where it's just like, I feel something more than I'm able to articulate. <laughs> I, I don't know. There's you. You almost seem to cultivate these words or these spaces, either through your words or through the pauses or, or whatever it may be, where I feel something very strongly, and I, I'm in a I'm in a place where I, I'm I'm not even sure. Like I I, I know very clearly what I'm feel. I feel very clearly what I'm feeling, but articulation doesn't come so quickly from it. Do, 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 does that make sense? Or it does. Sometimes I feel I'm saying nonsense. No, no, no. But like, no, but de- definitely like, not though. Like, do, do, do you get me? Like, it, it, like the feeling is is undeniable. But yes, yes. I, I, you, you are not the the first to say this, and I'm gratified to hear this. It 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 is. It feels like feedback, but it's also true that. I've often come across some folk 
that um, say, nah, this is all nonsense. This is this is nonsense. We have to get right down to the facts. We have to get right down to it. And I, I understand that sentiment. Sometimes you just want your pizza, you know, with all the ingredients specified and things in. You want a transaction and you want to get right to the point. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to get to the point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, even my, like, like even my, our wedding vows, right? Instead of yes, instead of, do you take this? It wasn't a yes. I couldn't say yes. It wasn't, yes, I do. No, yes, it's too tiny. I read a poem, you know, I read a poem and it was meandering. I, I could almost feel, I'm sure he didn't do this. It was a nice man, but I could almost feel the pastor the person who joined us to get rolling his leg and just say, please just say yes already. Come on. Just say yes and get out of here. <laughs> but it was in a garden and it had no walls. My wife and I rejected walls, right? Again, that theme and motif of, of being uncomfortable with closure, yeah. right? Like, like it's, it's strange because simultaneously I like warmth. And I like to be covered and I like tiny spaces. Like I, I'm not a very public facing person. Right. Like if I travel to a new place, I go into my hotel room or I go into the room that has been carved out for me and I close the curtains and I just love the hiddenness of it. And at the same time, I, I love the, the open endedness of things. Like maybe my pleasure in, in that form of warmth. Is, is dependent on the, on the acknowledgement that that warmth is a creation of the open-endedness of things, right. right? Not the repudiation of it, not the other of it, but the creativity of it. Some, I'm just thinking along with that. But back to my point, many people that I meet often say, yeah, we don't need this. We don't need this stuff. Tell us how to solve climate change. What's the technology? What is knowledge? Get right to the empirical status of it. We don't want this meandering stuff. And this is the reason why I, 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 I fail in many contexts to reach people. And that's perfectly fine. Um, but I don't know how. I don't know how to arrive. I'm a traveler. But what, um, what I feel, and, and it's usually in, when I say that expression, when I say my, this is my experience, these are the experiences that I, I think something magical is happening in, like where, where it's usually from someone that I, I don't know, I, I get a sense of like, there's a connection either with that flow or there's an aliveness, um, with that person. And I, I'm in, in the space of that aliveness myself. And, and it's, I, I experience these moments in my, in my life as well. Um, where I just, I don't know, I, I kind of get a sense that I'm conscious of my connection to the overall, when you use that kind of a analogy of the wave, not realizing that it's part of the ocean, that's the kind of, and I think that's just an uncomfortable space for people to inhabit because I think that just leads us open to this much wider openness where I think on a, as almost like on a deeper level, those were the solutions. It's just my, it's my own bias to think this, right? Cause it's part of my own investigations in life, but I, I have a sense that those are where the solutions actually lie. Uh, and it's hard mm. to convince people that 
th- perhaps this is where this is the actual stuff. Um, and maybe mm-hmm. we're looking at something and I'm not trying to compare things and say shallow or not or reduce one approach mm-hmm. to saying that that's not it or the opposite to that. But just I don't know, there's something in, in the way you capture things that just there seems to be a real sense of aliveness to it or, or at least openness or possibility. Mm-hmm. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Um, I'm even of the opinion that we need this is how I often figure you know, coming to a conversation that is perhaps focused on climate chaos and stuff that I don't, I think we need more than a solution. What's, what's more than a solution? Bio, come on, let's just speak about sequestration and carbon capture technologies and mitigatory technologies and legislation and activism. All this more than solution you speak about, but if you just hear me out, maybe this could be best conveyed with with the story of Job in the Bible. I don't know, I'm getting all biblical this this afternoon. <laughs> it's Easter, so why not? Very timely. Um, yeah, good timing. Good timing. In Job is you know the story of Job in the Bible. Job suffering death around him, children gone, cattle gone, and saws and boils all over his body, and he screams. This tense, gut-wrenching screaming that I did everything by the book. Why are you doing this to me? Screaming to God. And God just shows up in this very annoying way. Just annoying. Like, if a psychotherapist should show up that way, probably would lose her license. Right? Like, just shows up by saying, yeah, have you seen uh, the constellations? Have you seen Behemoth and Leviathan? Have you seen this? And it doesn't feel directly related to the existential questions that this mortal is posing about goodness and accountability. It doesn't feel anything like that. It doesn't feel like a solution. I, I often return to this to to acknowledge that sometimes um, solutions, because they're legible, because they're intelligible, their intelligibility is a give, is, is, a, is a, what do I want to say, is a threat, or their intelligibility is a pointer to the fact that they emerge from the same economy that this problem emerges yeah. from, right? In a, in a very circular way, Problems and solutions feed each other. It's like the Promethean problem or the punishment by Zeus. They feed each other, right? So that what you need sometimes is bewilderment. And bewilderment is how the new emerges, right? So God refuses to answer the questions directly. He refuses to fit in. He doesn't condone the language of accommodation. He just invites Job outside has to go out of the logic altogether, has to exit the logic that requires a final solution. Oh, well, not a final solution in that historical, <laughs> um, horrifying sense, but a complete totalizing answer. And so um, um, I feel bewilderment like the monster disrupts the logic of continuity and invites new logics to take root. 
And so it's, it, I feel we need more than a solution to, for instance, climate chaos. And the world is teaching us that in, in ways that, that we don't really know how to take into, to appreciate, right? It's Denmark trying to clean its shores with tractors, with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then they clear the beach, their beaches, at least in one municipality, they clear the beach of plastic and debris and they dump it back into the ocean, right? It's like, because the solution is still dependent on the terms that the problem has, has dictated. Yeah. Right. It's, it's like we're still thinking in terms of ourselves as users and the world as background. We're still, we're still in that logic. So even if we were to delay um, symptoms, if we were to push it out a little longer, it's still the same logic. We're just giving room for the problem to fester in different ways, like switch off your lights. Why? It, it helps, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't fly. Why? Right, it helps, but it we're still stuck in the same logic. We're still users of the planet, and 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 that's where things get sticky. When you were mentioning uh, just the the experience of Job and bewilderment, it just made me think of the idea of I think it was Einstein said he had to, in order to discover a special relativity um, or general relativity, he had to go out of his mind. There's something. It's almost like the the key, what you're talking about. I think it came in a yeah, dream or yeah. something. And, but this sense as well mm-hmm. of like the, this, the current structure can't be both the poison and the cure. So yeah. you, this, this, this line of thinking or this mode of thinking that you have is more to kind of cultivate. I'm not, I'm not saying this is with a direct intention again, but just potentially this cultivating this bewilderment, cultivating this like, what does that mean? Oh, I feel some, you know, you know like the, just something that takes us just out of the, the sequence, uh, the sequence, the sequence of our, our logical mind. That could be the place where we discover new modes, new colors, new ways of, of, of co-creating with this, this overall, this overall collective. Yes. Yes. I like that phrase, cultivating bewilderment. It's like wonder and inquiry. Ooh, love yeah. that. It's cultivating bewilderment. It's like, I mean, I sat recently with one of the um, scientists that, one of the scribes of the IPCC report, the recent IPCC report. It, it, it wasn't a very inspiring sitting with, let me put it that way, with all due respect to her. The, the posture and everything, I mean, these are, these are the collectives that are creating one of the most significant stories of modernity. They are literally, they are literally tracing out the limitations that modernity did not believe it had, right? They're tracing out this limitation. And there was a sense of, well, we've done it all. We've, we've acknowledged everything. We've thought about all different kinds of pathways and possibilities. We've done our work. We've created this very gripping story and we've passed it on to the policymakers to do something with it. It, 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 it just felt like the tortoise in the Yoruba story 
who gathers knowledge and stuffs it in the, into the calabash, right? Because he, he, he challenges the gods. He, he tells them, I will be wiser than you. And the gods say, okay, go ahead. Let's see what you can do. So he extracts knowledge from everything, from plants, lions, from Mark, from Bio, from Zoom, from Mark Zuckerberg, from every living thing and every dead thing. I don't know how he does it, but he uses this spell and he takes the knowledge that everything has, supposedly has, and he stuffs it into this gourd that he hangs on his neck, right? And then the, the task is, what do we do with it? So he attempts to store it up on a large tree by climbing up the tree, but he's unable to climb because this gourd is in the way. Like the knowledge he's gathered is in the way and he's, able, he's unable to climb. A grasshopper, who's the stupidest of all animals in our mythology, hops by and says, why don't you just put this gourd on your back? I've been watching you try to climb. You don't have the skills, my brother. Put the gourd on your back, the calabash on your back. And he hops away. And the tortoise realizes the futility of this archival mission, right? He notices that his knowledge got in the way of wisdom or wisdom from, was from the stupidest of animals. Like this impediment became wise. And then he just abruptly stops the project and opens the cord and releases everything back. I think, I think there's a lot of things getting in the way. We're, and this is good work. I mean, they're doing a lot of work compiling the statistics, telling the story of oceans swelling and floods coming and, and carbon emissions and all of that. They're doing a lot of work doing that and it's precious. But I think we're still trapped in a solutionism that does that isn't wise and again wisdom is not just skillful knowledge application wisdom is when the world kicks back and requires something else of us that may not fit within the logic of a solution i, I don't know there's something about it that just makes me think of the the tortoise collecting all this it's almost like a form of control right like it, it doesn't provide an it doesn't provide an answer but just the more and more i get the more i'm I'm, I'm like the more I have control over what comes next or, or what needs to be done. But I know there's something within it then just to not, not to ignore information, not to ignore all this. You know, as you said, it's not just one way. It's not even rejecting modernity no. and going back to no. um, um, a no. primordial way of being. But it, it's just a, I think you used the word humility when, um, I think it may have even been when you were talking about with your son as well, but just there's a humility, I think, with information, which allows something to also become wisdom, the ability to acknowledge, okay, there's still maybe something I'm not looking at here. There's still something I don't know, even though I know so much, like there, there's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It is. You've, you've beautifully curated that moment, brother, with, with your summary. Yeah. Yes. And you're pretty adept at summarizing things and well, thank you yes it feels i'm, tr it feels I'm trying to make sure to i'm that. understanding as well what you're saying to be honest <laughs> <laughs> i can see you processing you see you just yeah, yeah, yeah. you know to, but, but it's um <laughs> look bio i've really enjoyed what you've shared it's, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure just to even for you to take me along with you on some of these lines of perspective or lines of inquiry and then even experiences as well going back to the start even just with the idea of thinking as a teenager of 
what is heaven and is there dust in heaven um you know all the way through these ideas Interesting. Of, you know looking for new colors sharing with us the perspective of yeah. how you potentially see how we do find solutions um even cultivating bewilderment like humility a willingness to shift perspective and let go at times this beautiful story as well of your interpretation of your relationship with your son and then your son's teaching you like that just some really gorgeous sentiments here and then this idea too of not things not being closed not wanting to f- being comfortable with the fact of not arriving at a fixed point and almost the things that we think we're trying to comfort ourselves with are the things that would almost take us our aliveness, our adventure, our joy, or our our co-creation would remove ourselves from the process. Just as I tend to to ask my guests at the end of these conversations, what what is it is a good life for you, Bio? I return back to the I return to the metaphor, the figure in that old essay that I'm going to now dust off <laughs> and maybe just. Just uh, start typing up again, escape from heaven. The good life in growing up was heaven. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was heaven. All heaven represents all the good things we get today. Now I'm not so sure. I'm not even so sure that I, I would frame the good life as the good life. Like the good life is no longer feels categorical to me. I'm much more interested in the sensuous life and maybe even the sensuous death, right? As an analog, a different, a different cartography. Like in a way, I'm politely refusing to answer the question of the good life by dancing towards the sensuous death or the dying, um, or the aliveness, the openness to, to things. So that in a, in some sense, I'm posturally slipping through the cracks and I'm looking you in the eye or yeah, maybe yeah, not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking away at, and I'm noticing the dark room. There's some loaves of bread here and there. There's a candlelight gleaming there. There are people crying as if in the corner, they're practicing grief like practicing it urgently because the angels might come and swoop in and push us back into the good life. And so they're crying their eyes out because it's urgent, right? And and there's some there even mocking themselves with pain just so they can feel pain again, right? It's like a sensuous refusal to be captured in any one yes. thing. That's where I'm at, the sensuous becoming, no longer the good yeah, life. Yeah, and, you know, the... <laughs> God, that's that's a beautiful answer. the The question, even I'm asking as well, is what is a good life for you? You, you know, like even what that is for anyone and the sensuous becoming. And uh, I haven't published it yet, but I interviewed a lady who works with either as an end of life doula or a death doula, and also with um, taking care of uh, uh, bodies as well after they've died. And there's something so gorgeous yeah. about the intertwining of death and life in that answer. And it was very much the same for her. She mm. couldn't, she couldn't disentangle the idea of a good life and a good death. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think there's something really alive about acknowledging death within the answer of what is a good life. And it seems like maybe mm. seem like a bit of a paradox, mm. but it, it it isn't at all. 
It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah, it feels so welcoming. Like stuffing yourself in the hotel room and closing the curtains in order to see the universe <laughs> properly. Bio, look, I'm so grateful for your time um, and thank you so much for joining us here on, on the What is a Good Life podcast. Uh, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed this dialogue immensely um, and, I, and I hope our paths cross again at some point in the future. It will. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you very much.